Well, the co-ed had two problems that many college students have. Low grades, no money. And because of those problems, she knew that she was going to have to confide in her parents to uh, articulate her situation, and she was fearful. She was afraid that they wouldn't be very understanding. So after considerable thought, she came up with a rather creative way to inform them of her situation. She decided to write a letter. Dear Mom and Dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy I met two weeks ago. He quit high school after the 11th grade to get married. About a year ago, he got a divorce. We hope to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to live with him. I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of college last week. I hope to finish sometime in the future. I don't know. That was the first page. Parents turned over the letter to the second page, and it said this. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is completely false. None of it is true. But it is true that I got a C-minus in French, and I flunked math. <laughs> and I'm in desperate need of some money. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? <laughs> I think her parents killed her. <laughs> But it is amazing, isn't it, that even bad news, if couched in horrible news, can sound like good news. <laughs> and yet God has a better way to deal with bad news. The Bible tells us that even though we are sinners, that's the bad news. And the wages of sin is death, that's the horrible news. That God forgives our sin in the cross out of love and by grace that's the incredibly good news and so God deals with the trauma of the horrible news with this amazing good news and allows us to understand that his grace and mercy are victorious over everything oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And that's what the communion service is all about. It's about the love of God on display. That our horrible sin that should take us to eternal punishment can be overcome by grace. That where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And the love of God is going to conquer sin in the hearts of those who turn to Christ. And they will be truly forgiven. If you were to ask King David, the king of Israel, what makes a person really happy? You're a wealthy man. Is it accumulating a lot of things? David would have said no. You're a powerful man, probably the most powerful man in all the world at that time. Is it might? No. David, you're a well-known man. You're like an idol in Israel. The ladies have written songs about you, Saul. Slain as thousands, David is ten thousands. Is it fame that makes a person truly happy? David would have said no. He would have said something like this. The thing that really makes a person happy 
the joy and happiness that is real is for those whose disobedience is forgiven and whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy there is reserved for those whose record the Lord has cleared of all guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty before God. That's a paraphrase of Psalm 32, the first two verses. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 32 and find that the greatest happiness in all of life is to have your sins forgiven. This is one of the seven penitential psalms in the book of Psalms, the first being Psalm 6, the next one being 38, and Psalm 51, well known as perhaps the most famous of all the penitential psalms. David is the author. We know that from both the Old Testament and the New, where the Apostle Paul confirms it in Romans chapter 4. And it's said to be a, a maskill. We don't know exactly what a maskill is. Uh, one idea is that it, it means to contemplate, to think deeply about, that this is one of the contemplative poems. And yet all of the psalms should be meditated on. So that really doesn't give us much of a distinction. But it may be a psalm intended for instruction. And certainly a psalm that is highlighted perhaps above many others as a key psalm to understanding our relationship with God. David tells us in this psalm, verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And as though there were a pause for a moment as David begins to reflect back on his own life, and he says, you know, I was not always a person without deceit. I lived as a hypocrite. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's as far as we're going to get this morning. Lord willing, we'll look at the rest of Psalm 32 next week. But did you notice in verse 1 the word covered and in verse 5 the phrase cover up? Really, that's all you can do with your sins. In a human sense, cover them up or in a divine sense, have them covered. Let's look at both of those just for a moment. First of all, the cover up. This is the human attempt to ignore or somehow put out of sight your sin. And that's exactly what David did. He describes it as a cover-up in verse 5. After having established the position and status of the one who is truly happy and really blessed in life, he says, I was not always that way. Verse 3, when I kept silent, the sounds of silence. You, you see, there was sin in David's life, and there was silence about that sin. What sin are we referring to? The sin with Bathsheba and the multiple sins that followed. 
It is interesting, when people think of David, they often think of David and Bathsheba before they think of David and Goliath. Because we often think of the failures of people before we think of their victories. David's failure with Bathsheba was monumental. Hmm. David is a king, and instead of going out to war, as most kings did at that time, he stayed at home. That might have been the first step in his downfall. But David had a weakness for women. If you study his biography, and if you're honest, you'll find out that David had many women, and he had a weakness for more. He was a godly man in many respects, which means that godly people are not freed from temptation and battles with sin. He was a courageous man, a great warrior. And yet one day, walking on the top of his palace, he saw Bathsheba, and he said to his servant, I want that woman. The Hebrew text tells us the servant came back and said, David, she's married. And David apparently said, I don't care. I want her. Go get her. The Bible tells us from that one night stand, there was a baby conceived. And when David heard, he began to cover up. Okay, let's call Uriah, her husband, in from the battlefront and, and let him stay at home for a few days. And then everyone will think that the baby is Uriah's. But Uriah, being a man of great integrity, came home and slept on the porch. Everyone saw that. He said, I'm going to sleep on the porch. I'm not going to go in and enjoy my family when my comrades are risking their lives for the nation. And so David said, okay, go back to war. That didn't work. So then he devised a plan where he would send the, the best of his fighters up to the front and then call retreat, and Uriah would be caught and killed, and he was. What makes it unusually interesting is that Uriah was one of David's 30 best fighting men. He's listed. He's, he's like the uh, Navy SEALs, part of the SEALs. He's, he's the best of the troops. And David sacrificed him to cover up his sin. And for a year, for a year, while the baby was growing in Bathsheba's womb, David covered up his sin. Oh, he married Bathsheba as soon as Uriah died. The wedding was rather quick. And then he thought that everyone would think, he was hoping that everyone would think the baby was his in Bathsheba's after their marriage. What did David do during that year of cover-up? He went about his kingly duties, played the part of a hypocrite. He went to the temple to offer sacrifices. He delivered pious speeches. He, he led his people into other battles. He played the part of a godly king. And it was all facade. Until one day David's friend came in by the name of Nathan. And Nathan put David on the spot. By the way, what else was happening during that year while David was covering up his sin? Well, he tells us, verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Before the phrase psychosomatic illness was ever invented, David had it. His tortured conscience caused physical trauma. He says in verse 3, my bones wasted away. Have you ever been so sick that your bones ache? And hurt. It sounds like osteoporosis almost, as David describes weakness where there should be great strength. 
And then he talks about emotional agony in verse 3 when he says, I groaned all day long in my spirit. Outwardly he was silent, and he kept up the game, but inwardly he was in agony. And his spirit groaned. Verse 4, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. That's spiritual stress. That's conviction from God. I, I like the statement from the old Puritan who said, the Lord will never allow you to sin successfully if you're one of his children. <laughs> That's right. Because whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens. If you're one of his, he's going after you. Now, if you're not one of his, he may just let you go. But if you're one of his, he'll go after you, and he'll make you miserable in sin. A child of God cannot sin successfully. Oh, David was stressed out for an entire year because the heavy hand of God's conviction was on him. And then he says in verse 4, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I like the New Living Translation. It says, my strength evaporated like water in the summer's heat. Have you ever been dehydrated? And, and you know the loss of energy? Have you ever tried to run a race when you're dehydrated? You can't do it. Your feet feel like lead. And so David has no strength. He's groaning inside. His bones are hurting. Spiritual stress because he knows he's not right with God. For a year he lived that life. And many Christians live that same type of life every day, day in and day out. And it's killing you because sin is toxic. We were never made to have sin dwell in us. We were not designed by God to be healthy and maintain unconfessed sin in our soul. It's going to make you miserable if you're a child of God. Proverbs 28, 13. The one who covers his sin will not prosper. Where did Solomon get that? Probably from his dad, David. Because we know in the Proverbs, many times it's the father telling the son about the truth of God, and Solomon records David's words. When we try to cover our sin, from a human standpoint, the sin is still there. The covering is superficial. Sin is devastating. It will kill you slowly. The sin and the silence. And the consequences, we've described those, the trauma, the emotion, uh, the spiritual, uh, all of those consequences. It's interesting when we examine our lives and we realize that we are not living a life that really is typified by happiness. We often go to many other answers. Well, if I had a better job, if I had a better home, if I had a better car, if I had a better spouse, if I had better kids, then my life would be happy no, it's often these spiritual issues where we're simply not right with God. I told you that David had a friend, and by the way, your best friend is the friend who's willing to put their bony prophetic finger in your face and say, you're not right with God. The wounds of the friend, better than the kisses of an enemy. 
Nathan comes into David. Can I speak with you? David says, go on. And Nathan the prophet says, let me tell you a story, David. There was a man who had a bunch of sheep. He's a rich man. And a friend is coming over to have dinner. And, and then there's this poor man who has only one little lamb. He treats that lamb like it's his own child. He even sleeps with that lamb. He cares for it so much. And that bothers me a little bit, but it's in the story. And you get the idea that here's this situation where the rich man says, okay, I'm going to provide a meal for my friend. I'm going to take the one lamb from the poor guy, slaughter it, and give dinner to my friend. Before Nathan can finish the story, David bolts off his royal throne and says, that man must die. David thought it was a real story. Didn't realize it was a metaphor and a parable. And what did Nathan say? You're the man. It's all about you, David. I would have said, you're the man, and ran as fast as I could. <laughs> Nathan stood there, said, this is about you. And David broke down and wept. His heart was broken. God had been convicting him for over a year. And Nathan said, God is going to forgive your sin, but there are going to be consequences still. The sword's never going to depart from your house. And Absalom, David's son, rebels against David. And then Amnon, David's other son, violates a half-sister, Tamar. And then Absalom kills his brother, Amnon. And sin is devastating. It's passed down from the father to the children. But David confesses his sin, and the Bible tells us that God forgives David's sin. Can you imagine that? An adulterer and a murderer and a liar for over a year. Boy, if God can forgive that sin, do you think he can forgive ours? Paul said, I'm the chief of sinner, and God forgave me just to prove to everyone else if he can Forgive the chief, he can forgive all the other Indians. Argument from the greater to the lesser. <clears throat> so David confesses his sin. That's verse 5. Then, after that confrontation with Nathan, here's, here's the covering. We go from the cover-up, which is man's attempt to cover his own sin, to the covering described in verse 1. The covering of Jehovah. This is God's this is the divine removal, elimination, expiation of our sin. The covering. It starts with confession. Verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity any longer. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The word confession in the Hebrew means to acknowledge. It means to acknowledge that it is real and to acknowledge that it is mine. To own it. The Greek word for confession is the idea of agreeing with God that it is wrong, that it is sin. And so David is now confessing, the sin is real, it is mine, I agree with God. 
He's, he's being honest for the first time after having lived in deceit for over a year. Honest with God. And you see, my friend, there are only two ways to deal with the sin. You can try to cover it up, but it's really not gone. And then you, you have to suffer all the consequences. But when God covers your sin, it is gone. It's removed. And where does it start? With confession. John Stott is right when he says God cannot cover our sins in forgiveness unless we uncover them in confession. Until I'm honest and I acknowledge my sin, there'll be no forgiveness. If I say I have no sin in me, I deceive myself. The truth is not in me. I'm a liar. But if I confess my sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the good news is you don't have to play the part of the hypocrite. You don't have to pretend that you're perfect. You're not. The good news is you come to God as you are and you acknowledge your sin and there is fresh and free forgiveness to wipe all your sin away. David said, I acknowledge my sin. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them We'll have mercy, Proverbs 28, 13. And that's what David did. He confessed his sin. By the way, the word sin is described here with three different Hebrew words. In verse 1, the word transgression means rebellion. The word sin in verse 1 means an offense against the holy character of God. The word sin in verse 2 means iniquity or perversion, something that's twisted. And our sin before God is a rebellion against his righteous rule. It's an offense against his holy character. And it is perverted and twisted to think that we can find happiness outside of the path of God, the righteous path of God. David said, I confessed all of that. I agreed with God that it, it was rebellion, that it was a transgression against his law, that it was twisted, and that it was perverted. And what are the consequences of this new covering? Well, verse 1 says, blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. You are truly happy when you know your sins are gone, when you're not faking it anymore, but you're embracing his mercy and his grace. Happiness doesn't come by wealth and might and fame. It doesn't come by any of these means that the world is so hot on. It comes by forgiveness from the righteous God who could punish us but longs to save us. Not only is there blessedness, but there is, as it says in verse 5, forgiveness. God forgives the penalty of our sin, and he, re he removes the guilt of our sin. Those are two different things. The penalty of my sin is the punishment that I would endure. The guilt of my sin is the feeling that I'm not right with God. Now, I can be forgiven and have no penalty and yet still feel guilty. Has that ever happened to you, Christian? 
Are you ever reminded about your sins and then the guilt just comes in? Remember what you did last week? Last year? 10 years ago? 40 years ago? Yes, we do, don't we? And it's so horrible, and sometimes I think about it in the middle of the night and I can no longer sleep. Oh, my sin! But then I think, oh, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. That's where the joy comes. I am a forgiven man. Spurgeon was right when he said, the blessedness is not ascribed to the diligent law keeper, but rather to the humble law breaker, who by grace so rich and so free has been fully forgiven. So not only is the penalty gone, but the guilt is gone. I don't have to live in guilt. I can flee to Jesus Christ and say, I am a great sinner, but you're a greater Savior. And you died for my sin, and you said, if I confess, you'll forgive. I'm going to believe you, and my sin is gone, and I'm going to go forward in the knowledge of wonderful forgiveness. David said, David said, verse 5, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Wow. And then added to that picture is this idea, verse 2. Blessed is the one whose twisted perversion the Lord doesn't count against them. Blessed is the one whose record the Lord has cleared from all guilt. No charge against you. Isn't that wonderful? No charge against you. I've used this illustration too many times, but some of you haven't heard it, and it is so good, I've got to use it again. Haven't used it to the, in the two other services, so you get a special thing here, unless you've heard it 20 times, and then you'll say, why is he using this again? But it's just so good. So here it is. Heard it from Warren Wiersbe years ago about a guy who bought a Rolls Royce. And he went uh, uh, in, a, in the countryside, Europe, traveling around, vacationing, and the car had trouble. He'd had it long enough so it was no longer in warranty. He knew it was going to cost big bucks to get his Rolls Royce fixed. Couldn't find a dealer where he was to fix it, so he calls back home to the place he bought the car. They fly a dealer out to his location. The mechanic, or not a dealer, mechanic. The mechanic fixes the car and then flies back. Now, the guy finishes his vacation knowing that when he gets back, he's going to have a huge bill waiting for him, right? I mean, what do you pay a mechanic per hour? What do you pay a mechanic per hour who has to fly to your location? And he, he knows the bill's going to be great. So he, he comes home, checks in the mail, there's no bill. Checks, no, no bill. Week after week, no bill. Finally, he's just so curious, he, he goes to the dealer, the Rolls-Royce dealer, and says, I, I know I have to pay, I don't want to, it's going to be a big bill, but would you please tell me what I owe you? And this is what the dealer says to him, we have no rec record of a Rolls-Royce ever breaking down. <laughs> Doesn't happen. <laughs> And you know, when you and I sin, the guilt is so great. And I live with that guilt until the stress is killing me. And the trauma is immobilized me. 
And I come to the Savior and say, okay, I've been trying to cover this stuff up by myself and it's not working. What do I have to pay? And he says, I have no record of you ever sinning. That is grace. And that is God. And that is Psalm 32. David was forgiven. Verse 2, he can now be honest. No longer has to live in deceit. He can live his life freely, happily, joyously, because of grace. And that's what you and I need today. And that's what the communion service offers. If you're not a Christian, come to the cross, the mercy tree, and find total forgiveness. If you are a Christian, stop trying to assuage your guilt by doing more good works. Go to the cross and find complete forgiveness there. Many of you remember back in 1997, that was the 100th year of Oldsmobile, and they had this grand parade in the city where they were showing off an Oldsmobile car from every production year except for 1907 and 1914. And these cards, if you remember the parade, they were immaculate. They were gorgeous and beautiful. Looks like they just came off the assembly line. But you and I know that many of those cars, just a couple years before, were sitting out in some barn or under some tree rusting away until someone took that car and with tons of love and tons of money and lots of time brought them back to a condition of perfection. Restoration, we call it. Did you know that God loves to be involved in restoration projects? Like you and me. We're rusting away and we look like we're no good and we're far from the design of our builder. But God says, confess and I will forgive and you will be cleansed and there will be no record and you will be the happiest person on planet Earth. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that this message may go down deep into our hearts and may we remember that our only hope for happiness is the cross of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.